The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm your host, as ever, Dr. Sam Williams, and today we are welcoming a fellow podcast host to the show. We welcomed along host of the fantastic podcast, The Respiratory Guru, Dr. Diana Kavanagh, who is a respiratory consultant from Sandwell and West Birmingham NHS Trust. Diana was fantastic in this episode where we discussed bronchiectasis, something which comes up so often in Paces. We talked through how to approach the station, pertinent signs to look for during the course of your examination, as well as covering off those all-important investigations and management. As ever, give us a shout on our Twitter via the website, that's at prepacespodcast, prepacespodcast.com, etc. And let us know which topics you want us to cover. If you absolutely love the show, chuck us a few quid on our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. But for now, let's get started with this episode of the Prepaces Podcast. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, and we are covering a topic which is a classic, comes up in paces all the time, and that is bronchiectasis. And joining us today, we've got a respiratory consultant who has been on our list for a little while now after she generously donated to the podcast on our Buy Me A Coffee page, and that is Dr. Diana Kavanagh. She's a respiratory consultant from Sandwell and West Birmingham Hospital's NHS Trust, and we could not be happier to have her contributing to the podcast today. And she has recently launched her own podcast called The Respiratory Guru, looking at the genuinely useful respiratory updates. So for those of you who are of a respiratory persuasion, I can highly recommend popping over to that podcast over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to have a look at that as well. But Diana, an absolute delight to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited. Slightly nervous, more nervous for this podcast than I am my own. Don't worry, we are all friends here on the Pre-Paces podcast. And so when you started the Respiratory Guru, Guru what, was the, what was the reason behind starting the podcast? Um, it was really because um, I was on maternity leave and I was kind of bored of being on that leave and also worried that my brain had just regressed 
in that time. And I wanted to update myself um, on what was going on at the moment. And um, we all like a, a quick fix, you know, something simple. And podcasts are pretty good at that. So um, I sort of looked around and couldn't find anything that just summarized what was going on right now in the literature. Because actually, there are a podcast here and there on another, mainly cardiology, to be honest. But there was a real, you know, lack of somebody else that could just summarize what was going on in the literature so that I didn't need to go through the painstaking work myself. Um, but in doing that, I actually created more work for myself, which is slightly backfired. <laughs> um, but I've learned a lot in doing it. And actually, I get really good feedback. I've learned, like I say, so much. Um, and I think it's a a, a really useful resource because I'm sure it's the same as a registrar, but as a consultant to keep genuinely up to date with your CPD. It's just the last, it doesn't, it's the last thing on your priority list because, you know, everything else, clinical, organizational goes first and your CPD suffers. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, that's what I did it for. And I'm say I'm learning a lot and I think it's helping others. Yeah, I have to say, I completely understand where you're coming from and empathize with that. And it's more or less pretty much the similar reason why I started this podcast. It was that I was looking for a resource to to help me. And I thought, well, you know, there's nothing out there. So who's better to do it than the person who wants it most, right? Challenge, yeah, I agree. Uh, what's it called? Take the challenge head on. So absolutely, just... Uh... Yeah, and I don't really like reading that much. And I don't really like, <laughs> I'm quite dyslexic, so I really struggle. Um, but in some ways, it's been it's been really good to, uh, yeah, challenge it head on. And yeah, I'm really proud of it. So I'd recommend anyone just, yeah, if you've got a niche, the podcast, uh, you know, arena is growing. So yeah, it's out there. Yeah, fantastic. And so it's, where's the best place to find you? It's Apple Podcasts, isn't it? They, apparently it's available on lots of different platforms according to the you know the host that I use as it were I mean I have Apple and it's really uh easy to find you just type in respiratory guru into the Apple podcasts and it's there but I'm led to believe from multiple sources that it's also widely available on like Spotify Google apps and things like that so it's multiple sources brilliant Listeners, after you're done listening to this episode, head over, have a listen to the Respiratory Guru. Having listened myself, I honestly think it's a great resource, especially for those who are of a respiratory persuasion. So yeah, couldn't recommend it enough. And not only is Diana going to be helping us look at bronchiectasis, but at the end of the show, she is going to be facing Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a quickfire quiz on a topic of their own choosing with the caveat being it can't be to do with medicine. So Diana, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? For some reason, I've gone for George Ezra. Um, the reason being, I suppose, is that we had a lovely holiday round, driving around Europe a few years ago, and um, we only had two CDs for the entirety of the Europe travel, one of which was Staying at Tamara's by George Ezra. So I feel like that is on loop in my head even now. So it's a, it's a great album. So, yeah, that's why. Fantastic. That's coming up at the end of the show. But to start us off, let's get started on this episode looking at bronchiectasis. So, Diana, if we could just start with a broad brushstrokes look at bronchiectasis, what exactly is bronchiectasis? 
So this is one of my favorite questions. Um, and one that I probably spend a long time speaking to patients about because it's really, to me, it's really easy once you understand it and everything kind of falls in place afterwards. So bronchiectasis, it isn't really a disease in itself. It is a consequence of something else that's occurred. So the way, if you don't mind, the way I explain it to my patients is that um, if you were to have inflammation, say, of the joints, uh, say you had a one-off inflammation of the joint, it would be red, it would be swollen and inflamed, but hopefully that would go away and then the joint would be normal. But if you have recurrent joint infections, then what? Then the joint will be then become scarred, and that is what happens in bronchiectasis: is the airway um, has been recurrently under, undergoing inflammation and infection and becomes scarred. Now, the other important thing with that as well is that, as I say to my patients, that we have the little tiny hairs, the cilia. So they brush; they're always brushing up phlegm from the bases of our lungs right at the top, and we're probably swallowing it without even realizing. So that's always sweeping up and out, clearing that phlegm up. But when you've got bronchiectasis, when this airway that you've got that has become air, um, inflamed and scarred, that ciliary function is also lost. So you get the um, the, the, the mucus secretions retained in that area. So yeah, and so part of the beauty of bronchiectasis is, is managing the consequences of that, but it's trying to figure out what happened that led to the airway to become scarred so that you can give the patient some feedback and you can try and stop it from happening again. That's, yeah, in a nutshell, how I describe it to my patients. Fantastic. And we'll come on to more on the various uh, causes and sort of range of etiologies of bronchiectasis a little bit later when we come to the um, differential diagnoses. And thinking about this in a sort of PACES context, it's probably pretty obvious that this is probably most likely going to come up in, in, a, in a respiratory station, isn't it? Uh, yes, I'd say so. Yeah, it's a pretty common disease, um, both you know inpatient and outpatient. So I say they're pretty, and also they're quite stable as well. So ordinarily, um, I say we'll go to the different causes, but um, they're quite stable. They couldn't, they're the whole bronchiectasis clinic, so they're quite easy to pick from and quite easy to come in on the day. So I'd say that they were, yeah, a high risk of presenting in paces. Fantastic. So if we start off with our examination of our bronchiectasis patients, quite often it's going to be something that we might see at the end of the bed. So we enter our respiratory station. The likely lead-in is going to be a pretty generic respiratory lead-in. It's going to be a patient with breathlessness, probably a productive cough, possibly some wheeze, but it's going to be a non-specific entry. I think that's pretty general in the respiratory station is that the lead-in isn't going to help you. But from the end of the bed, there might be some findings which might alert the candidates to the sort of signs which might indicate the patient has bronchiectasis. So, Diana, what can the candidates look for from the end of the bed? When I was preparing for this, I think the first red flag that this is going to be ronchiectasis is that they're young um, because there's not many young respiratory patients. And if they're young, I would have my alarm bells ringing that this is a CF patient with bronchiectasis or, you know, we'll come to it later, the cause of it. But if they're young, I think, oh, OK, <laughs> you know, this is this is might, might be what it is. Um, around the other parts of the bed, so sputum pots, if they've got any, that might sort of be left there as a uh, as a notion, then that might be part of the uh, the workup regime. 
Um, they might be on a bit of oxygen if they're having an infective exacerbation, I suppose. And then also have they got um, a nebulizer by the bed? So nebulized antibiotics um, are a big thing for bronchiectasis in outpatients. So have a look for um, yeah, a, a nebulizer and you might even be able to see that it's an, an antibiotic. In terms of their appearance, otherwise, they can look um, cachectic in that if they are poorly controlled, they have just got ongo this on it, oh, sorry, ongoing chronic inflammation, which is just burning energy and burning calories. So that's why they, they, they you know, they, they lose their weight. And I always say to my patients, if they've got to choose between breathing and eating, they'll choose to breathe. So they don't if you've got if you're a bad bronchiectasis patient you haven't got time to eat so they end up losing weight other signs the the thing with bronchiectasis is um and we can cover both but most bronchiectasis patients especially in the paces are going to be pretty stable it is extremely unlikely that they're going to wheel down an end-stage respiratory failure bronchiectatic patient waiting a transplant so um, and that's really the only time that you'd get some of the hard signs in terms of respiratory failure we can cover both but on general inspection, you're probably going to get someone quite stable and they're probably not going to have a lot going on that you can see. If they were really mean and wheeled down a bronchiectatic in respiratory failure, then you might expect perhaps some you know, peripheral cyanosis, um, work of accessory breathing and that kind of thing. Perfect. And um, one other thing which has sort of come in as a sort of a technical point, which, which I have to say I did do during my exam, and not something for clinical practice, purely for paces, was asking the patient to cough from the end of the bed. And I just thought it's something which is relatively quick to do. And if they've got a really big, wet, productive cough, but look relatively stable, I wonder if sometimes that could be a, a, a bit of a giveaway as well. That's probably, yeah, I didn't even think to do that. Yeah, you're right. It, it wasn't something I had to do in my paces, but it's a bit, it's almost a bit cheeky, isn't it? It's almost a bit of a thing on the side, but yes, absolutely. If they do cough and they've got a lovely wet sounding cough, then um, yeah, go for it. If you think you can get away with it. I mean, I think, I think the only disclaimer with it is, is that not all bronchiectatic patients are going to have a wet cough. And sometimes if, if a COPD patient has a, a coexistent, infective exacerbation they might have a wet cough too so it's no by no means 100 percent. but that's just something which helped me in in my exam so then moving on the the next part of the examination is typically you go to the hands and, and there are some signs you might find in the hands diana so what sort of things will the candidates be expected to look out for so Obviously, finger clubbing is one of the big is that the, you say you learn about your superiorative lung diseases as being uh, causes of, of finger clubbing. So, yes, have a look for that. Um, that's a, a, a good giveaway. When I look at the hands of bronchiectasis patients, actually, what I'm looking for is evidence, to be honest, of an autoimmune disease. Um, because when I see patients in my general respiratory clinic, the bronchiectasis side of it's easy but what I'm also thinking is you know I was going back to what I was saying at the start is not only how to manage it but also what caused it and when you do pace if you can stand up and you can say that you could they've got you know evidence of for example telangiectasia or you know tight skin in keeping with crest syndrome for example that's a real you know oh, a bullseye as it were you know so that's what I'm looking for is evidence of an autoimmune disease in patients who might have bronchiectasis. 
So then obviously everyone knows about yellow nail syndrome, although I think I've seen it once and and I think it was like in isolation. It actually didn't have any identifiable respiratory disease. It's just one of those uh, syndromes that are part of doing the dance, as it were, of paces. So have a look for it. And if you see it, you know, great that they wheel down said patients. But yeah, so yellow nail syndrome. Also looking peripherally, so with these bronchiectatic patients, as well as managing them with respect to their antibiotics, with nebulized antibiotics, we then do have patients who we want to give IV antibiotics on, but we do it via OPAT, i.e. that they have the antibiotics delivered um, in the community, but they just pop in for you know, their, their daily doses, etc. So have a look to see if they've got, if they're an inpatient, they'll just have a normal cannula, but have a look to see if you can see any evidence of a long line or a pick line, um, because that might give an indication that these patients have regular IV antibiotics. Those kind of patients, that's CF, that's, you know, normal bronchiectasis doesn't really get a pick line in. Um, so again, pick line in a young person with a wet cough, I'd start, knowing your uh, treatments yeah yeah and just to pick up on one thing there you mentioned opat which is outpatient antibiotic therapy for anyone who wasn't sure about what opat uh, where i work with we call it a um acah or acute care at home as well is it just for any listeners not sure what opat meant outpatient antibiotic therapy okay so we continue our examination we've done the hands we've done the arms and now we're moving on to the face and neck of the patient so what could the candidates look for here diana probably not a lot in the face of someone with bronchiectasis. in terms of hard signs obviously there's general signs but that's not what you're looking for in paces you're looking for hard signs in terms of again respiratory failure you've got your, your classic uh classic signs so for example you know is their jvp elevated because of core pulmonale or are they cyanosed For a bronchiectatic patient to have their RV failing and to be blue, they're not going to wheel in a blue patient. So very little in terms of the face and neck, to be honest, with a bronchiectatic patient. And so something we can take from this episode, as well as many episodes, as we've said before, all of this you should try and get through really quickly because getting to the chest and particularly respiratory examination, there's a lot to do in the chest as we'll discuss, having the time to do that thoroughly, especially covering all areas of the chest, is of paramount importance. So everything we've talked about so far, end of the bed, hands, arms, face and neck, ideally should be done within the first one to two minutes. So then, Diana, moving on to the chest, and this is where we're going to find the money of the uh, of the examination or the station. So first of all, the candidates are going to inspect the chest. And one thing you mentioned at the start was that they might be cachectic. So obviously looking for that, looking for scars of previous surgery. And I, I didn't want to go into that too much because, in honesty, we're probably going to end up having to do a whole separate episode on sort of scars and uh, and particularly in the respiratory station, looking at scars of lung surgery. Is there anything else the candidates should be looking for on, on inspection of these patients? 
I don't think so. I think you've covered most of it. Um, with the, I'm sure you'll go into it, but if they're, for example, a lung transplant patient, the clamshell uh, scar is under the ribs. So uh, just depending on how much or how little they've undressed the patient, just make sure you have a look under the rib cage because that's where the clamshell is, not necessarily on the on the, um, on the the chest. Um, and obviously just have a really good look at the back, but they'd be my only tips. Fantastic. Okay. So having inspected the chest, we're now going to move on to the palpation. And there are a few potential signs, but the auscultation is going to be the main thing. But Diana, we'll go through it as the candidates would go through the examination. So what might they find on palpation? So I guess um, on palpation, um, with for yeah, from a respiratory station and, and bronchiectasis, bronchiectasis, so for respiratory, very little again uh you're not really going to um see or feel a lot um your classic textbook findings with respect to respiratory examination about a parasternal heave a deviated apex beat um and an allowed uh p2 now these are uh signs of real right heart strain failure etc and it's very unlikely that they will bring them in but if you're one of the unlucky ones, signs of right-sided heart failure secondary to a respiratory disease would be the deviated apex beat and allowed P2. But like you say, the money's on the chest, isn't it? So I'd move on from that quite quickly and not get too upset about P1, P2. Yeah. And and the same goes for percussion as well. You know, it, it, it should be a reasonably normal examination, but Part of the reason we talk about these signs of pulmonary hypertension is that when we come to discuss your presentation back to the examiner, at least mentioning the fact that you didn't find any signs of pulmonary hypertension will demonstrate you've got the knowledge of the complications of that given condition. So now we come to auscultation, probably the most important part of the station. So Diana, what can the candidates expect to hear when they auscultate the chest of these patients? Really wet, coarse crackles at the lung bases. Uh, not a lot on the front. Your apexes are uh, apices are at the front. The back is your middle and your lower lobes. And because of gravity, just everything, uh, your infections, nine times out of 10 are in the lower lobes. So get to the back, get to the lower lobes, get to the bases, and then have a really good listen to those crackles because I think you'll just you know, be so happy when you hear them because your diagnosis is sorted. Um, so that's the, the crackle side of things. It's very unlikely you'll get any sort of additional signs. So with respect to like pleural effusions and stuff like that, I mean, it just popped into my head actually that, for example, lupus um, is something that can cause uh, rheumatoid, sorry, can cause uh, bronchiectasis and pleural effusions, albeit rare. Um, and then TB as well, I suppose, can, ca- can cause it. Actually, not really acutely. TB is quite an old, causes bronchiectasis later and, and it causes pleural effusions early on. So it's unlikely you'll get any sort of additional pathology in bronchiectasis. It's, it, you'll probably just hear crackles. So the crackles can be, uh, I guess, unilateral or bilateral, uh, depending on what the the source the source of it is and one thing they often say about the crackles with bronchiectasis which which can differentiate it from some of the other causes is that they will change with coughing so part of the paces process is 
you hear some crackles, you ask the patient to cough, you re-listen to the same area. And if the crackles essentially are unchanged, that would probably be more consistent with fibrosis. But then if they do change, but don't particularly get any quieter, then sometimes that can be indicative of bronchiectasis. Now, I know this can be very difficult to say because you only have a very short amount of time with which to make that assessment when you're seeing the patient in paces. But by and large, would you tend to agree with that? Yeah, I think it's reasonable to give it a go. If they got wet crackles, because if you could sort of picture your mind inside what's going on in their chest, their chest is sort of full of these mucus secretions. So with a good cough, if they can shift some of that mucus, it makes good sense that they could shift um, in in you know, trap secretions, bronchiectasis type patients, but then wouldn't move in like an ILD patient. So I think that's reasonable. Um, finally, about in terms of other signs, um, it is possible as well they could have an element of wheeze and don't let that put you off if they've got it bronchiectasis is fundamentally an airways disease it is a disease where it has become inflamed and then scarred etc but especially if they've got that ongoing driver for the bronchiectasis that that's causing ongoing airway inflammation that will cause a wheeze so don't let it throw you in terms of diagnosis you um, that can just play into the picture yeah. And the candidates can always say, you know, there's an element of wheeze, which may indicate, a, you know, a, an element of obstructive airways disease. And, um, you know, you can always put that in your differential. So it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, no, I've got my diagnosis wrong up to this point and I've actually got COPD. It's all about putting the clusters of, of science together. And then, as we mentioned earlier, if you know, if you've got time after doing all this uh, auscultating, because, you know, you'll be expected to auscultate all areas of the chest. Um, as we mentioned earlier, listening to heart sounds, pretty much just listening out for that loud second heart sound of pulmonary hypertension. And then similarly, looking in the legs where you may expect to find edema consistent with right heart failure as well. So pretty much that is more or less all of the signs you would expect to find in a patient with bronchiectasis. And so let's move on to discussing the presentation of these patients. Just a quick nod to our podcast sponsors before we get back to the show. Pastest.com obviously have a huge stack of videos online to help with your MRCP paces revision. But did you know they have no less than three separate videos covering patients with some form of bronchiectasis? In my opinion, it's an absolutely unmissable revision resource and you'd be chucking potential marks down the drain if you didn't at least try it out over at passtest.com. That's all for now. Let's get back into our episode with respiratory consultant, Dr. Diana Kavanagh. So moving on to the, the presentation. So you've come to the end of your examination and you are pretty confident that you found some wet sounding coarse crepitations on the chest on auscultation and you think this patient has bronchiectasis so some of the things you'll be expected to describe is obviously your findings but diana what other things in your presentation as well as your clinical findings would you be expected to mention as part of your presentation back to the examiner what sort of things should the candidates be thinking of including in their presentation to the examiners? 
I think it's a good idea to explain about the, you know, the overall health and condition of this bronchiectatic patient. So, i.e., are they stable uh, or are they, you know, unstable? Are they unwell? Is there evidence of any uh, right-sided heart failure, any right-sided heart strain? So I think we've already covered it, but, you know, if you do think that you're picking up signs of right-sided heart failure, they would be things like the raised JBP, the peripheral edema and the loud P2. Yeah, brilliant. And you already mentioned that it's very unlikely for them to uh, wheel out someone who's in sort of profound respiratory failure as well. Um, And then other things which they might want you to mention is sort of any potential signs of any treatment they might be receiving. So what sort of things could you look out for or, or might you have found which might give an indication of that? The signs of treatment. So I think we mentioned it in the exam, but looking for lines. So having a look for cannulas, looking for lines um, to see if, yeah, see what's going on there. Um, Although I would say that is less like, that is less, uh, it occurs less often these days. So we tend still to give a, you know, certainly for the non-CF patients, we tend just to give a two week course of antibiotics. And maybe in the CFs, obviously they have repeated, repeated infections. So they might have a pick line in. Um, So signs of, um, intravenous therapy signs of nebulized antibiotics be aware of that it's a mainstay of our treatment um, inhalers they may have inhalers they can have a whole range of you know, a whole range of them um, you know depend, depending on you know if they've got any other coexistent diseases um, have they got any use any sorry any evidence of salbutamol excessive use it seems unlikely I know we learn about it but it seems to the patient to have had back to back maybe really unfair to wheel down someone that only that had right right side heart failure but also had back to back nerves and was shaking so they're probably going to be quite stable and then um with respect to uh have they got any evidence of steroid overdose and Cushingoid features? So they shouldn't do. Maybe I'm a purist and I get annoyed when people treat the wrong condition. And with, uh, mainly because today in clinic, I saw someone that was, I was like, go away, go away and Google Cushingoid because that's what you are. Um, because she literally had the wrong diagnosis of asthma for about five years. And she'd been absolutely filled up with steroids and she didn't even have asthma. Um, so you shouldn't have steroids or bronchiectasis. It is not a part of the treatment. And I would, so yeah, they shouldn't be Cushingoid with bronchiectasis um, because the mainstay of treatment is antibiotics. It's not steroids. Um, there is something else going on if they're Cushingoid. For example, sorry, my PACES exam um, 12, 13 years ago was a patient who had a pneumonectomy. They were Cushingoid because obviously they need to have the um what you call it the anti-rejection side of things so I guess if they're post-op they might maybe be Cushingoid if they've got anti-rejection medications ongoing but yeah you wouldn't really see a lot else apart from evidence of antibiotic use and possibly scars from lung transplant. Yeah brilliant so a real differentiator there between you know if you're struggling mid-station between oh is this a copd asthma or is this a bronchiectasis if they're cushingoid really you should be looking elsewhere than bronchiectasis one of the things you'll be expected to try and present which might be tricky is thinking about the possible etiology of bronchiectasis now 
we've been talking for some time now and we could probably do a whole nother hour talking about the different differential diagnoses of patients with bronchiectasis. So we're going to try our best to go through these sort of as systematically as possible because the, the, the causes are wide ranging and varied. So Diana, maybe we can go through this in a sort of system, as systematic a way as possible, but can you talk us through the sort of range of differential diagnoses or causes of bronchiectasis? So I guess start with your congenital, you know, um, causes. So the, the cartaginas, um, so they're the patients who have got the, the dextrocardia and they've got the bronchiectasis from the recurrent chest infections or the CF patients. So, uh, so that's your, you know, young patient, start worrying about one of those two. Um, and obviously if it is cartaginas, hope you've listened to the apex beats because it would be on the other side so yes so that so that's uh, congenital um the other things that cause bronchiectasis namely are post-infectious so um ask the patient well you can't ask them this but in in clinic i say you know when did it start and what happened at that point? And um, so if they've had, yeah, TB, for example, if they've had some sort of um, uh, like foreign travel, it, 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 so yeah, post-infection, uh, childhood pneumonias, always ask about whooping cough and childhood pneumonias. They're the big causes of it. I see it a lot in my patients that are in their 50 and 60, patients who had whooping cough when they were little and now they've got bronchiectasis. Um, other causes of it are obviously the autoimmune thing. I'm always looking out for that. So autoimmune causes of it, so looking for your lupus, looking for your Sjogren's, etc. Um, and then it's kind of um, the same, but not the same is pulmonary fibrosis and traction bronchiectasis. So this is different because when you've got lung tissue that's fibrotic it's dry and it shrinks and it and, and it, when it shrinks it pulls open the airways so functionally it's bronchiectatic because it's dilated because it's been pulled open um, and it's dilated and it just can't do its job properly so you get it is bronchiectasis clinically and radiologically but i guess the cause of it is slightly different um when i'm sending the bloods for these patients as well as their autoimmune screen i always send their um, immune screen as well and uh, to see if they've got um normal functioning um, antibodies so just your igm iga etc to see if they've got um things like uh, hypogamma globulinemia cvid so common variable immunodeficiency um or even i suppose you know uh like like hiv the final thing is um, in sticking with the immune side of things is ABPA. So this is something that I really enjoy talking about, but I won't for the purposes of the podcast. ABPA, uh, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. It's asthma, it's aspergillosis. Um, and one of the key radiological criteria for it is central bronchiectasis not peripheral actually so it might not come up on the station so yeah it's central bronchiectasis for abpa i hope that's helpful yeah i try to keep it brief <laughs> well there's a lot of causes to fit in and you know you managed to do that in what at least less than five minutes which is better than i would do 
And there's one other thing which I found in the research for this podcast, and I'm not 100% sure on the accuracy of it, but one of the things which comes up is mechanical obstruction to the airways. Is this, like you said, is this one one which is quite similar to the pulmonary fibrosis in that it's not quite true bronchiectasis, but it's sort of a manufactured mechanical bronchiectasis? I just, I've never seen it. So that's what's making me sort of uh, doubt it. Um, because to have bronchiectasis, it takes time for the airway to become inflamed, not only inflamed, but scarred. So, you know, most things that would obstruct the area, um, for example, a cancer, by the time your airways had time to go through that cycle of inflammation and, uh, and then scarring, um, you've either had it chopped out or things haven't gone very well for you. Um, then other things, oh gosh, I can't think what else it would be. Like same with lymph nodes is, is, is the same as what we were saying. They tend to, you know, progress or regress um, before the bronchiectasis has had time to, you know, to, to come on. And then foreign bodies, not so much. Again, like you'd have it taken out. So yeah, I, w- I wouldn't really, you haven't got long in paces. I wouldn't list mechanical obstruction unless you fancy spending the next minute and a half winding yourself into a big fat hole. Yeah, absolutely. If you come across the the wrong examiner in that and uh, <laughs> you, you could you could very well find yourself in a world of trouble. So yeah, definitely. And that's something which I would say goes across the whole of paces is put your put your money right at the top, you know, put, put your preferred diagnosis first. Never forget common things are common. And that's the same in paces, even if the rare stuff can come up. So having finished our presentation, we're then going to move on to the common examiner questions, which you'll have the remaining four minutes or maybe two and a half after your uh, presentation. And so the usual sorts of questions will be something like, how would you investigate this patient? Diana, how would you go about answering that sort of question? So how would you go about investigating a patient with bronchiectasis? Yeah, so the four main things I do for bronchiectasis patient is uh, a CT scan or a HRCT, blood work, lung function test and sputums. So CT scan or a HRCT scan, that's what you ideally want to get the HRCT scan because they're, uh, they're technically fewer slices, but of much greater detail. So when it cuts through the airway, you can genuinely see if the airway is thickened and diseased, etc. So order your HRCT. And then when you're looking at the results, um, you'll want to see if yeah the airways are, are bronchiectatic. Now, the uh, indicator of what makes an airway bronchiectatic is if the inner lumen of the airway is bigger than its adjacent blood vessel. So I scroll down and I keep looking for that comparison. Um, That thickened ring, the signet rings as well. But a signet ring in itself isn't necessarily diagnostic. It really needs to be in parallel with that blood vessel. Otherwise, it's just a thickened airway. It's not bronchiectatic. Um, so that's the, the CT scan, that's the HRCT. Um, we don't really, it sounds bad, but x-rays, we don't really fuss with that much anymore because you always go on and get a HRCT and there's nothing really diagnostic on a, on a, on a chest x-ray. All the money's on a CT scan. Uh, next, I would do blood tests. Um, so what I'm mainly looking for is the is, is the autoimmune screen. That's the main thing. Um, now, in terms of uh, other fancy blood tests that you might want to do, depending on how the consultation went, 
would be looking for ABPA. So we sort of touched on it before. So this is that allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. The allergic, you are inappropriately mounting a hypersensitivity reaction to aspergillus. Aspergillus is okay. We've probably got aspergillus down in our lungs, but it's fine. It just sits there, doesn't cause us any bother. Um, but, a, but if you've got ABPA, so you've got an asthma element, then you form IgE antibodies inappropriately to something that's quite benign. So you're looking for IgE specific to aspergillus in an ABPA, and you're also looking for that eosinophil count, which actually needs to be greater than 1.0, according to the, the, the definition, although that's obviously beyond the scope of this, but a significant eosinophilia. Um, but that's the only time that you look for eosinophil counts really in in bronchiectasis and we said before it's actually a central bronchiectasis but it depends on how mean your examiner is feeling next thing is sputum culture so you must 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 get sputum cultures off the patient um, to find out what they are growing i guess it's better to know what they're growing when they're infected so that you can give them a targeted antibiotic but knowing what they're growing in a stable state is equally useful because then you can find out if their airways are genuinely chronically inflamed uh, chronically infected because then you probably do need to add, add in a prophylactic antibiotic so sputum samples and uh, CT are kind of my mainstay of treatment. And then um, lung function tests. Um, so these are useful, but I take them with a pinch of salt. So if you've got a patient who's got bronchiectasis and ongoing airway inflammation, say it's due to, for example, an autoimmune disease, then the airway is going to be uh, quite collapsible and you're going to get a reduced FEV1 um, or it's chronically infected. Yeah, say if it's chronically infected. So the, the airway, when you try and breathe out, just goes, you know, it doesn't do a lot. So you don't, you don't get a very good FEV1. And in that case, that isn't your typical obstruction. And yes, it is maybe COPD in terms of you're, a, say, a purist looking at the spirometry. But the difference is to me is it doesn't need COPD inhalers. So I take I take the spiro with bronchiectasis with a real pinch of salt because it's because we're so used to looking at spirometry with our COPD cap on. If you're given spirometry with a bronchiectasis patient, which would be quite mean, you know, given that most candidates are still at SHO level. Um, if they have got an obstructive ratio, it's because their airway is inflamed or scarred, not necessarily because of a driving COPD pathophysiology. Uh, and the point being that we give too many steroids in bronchiectasis patients, too many inhaled steroids. So, um, so yeah, spirometry I'd take with a, um, yeah, it is useful. It can muddy the water. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. So high-risk CT looking for specifically bronchial, well, bronchial wall thickening, but enlarged dilated airways a couple of the other signs which um which i've seen in or which i found in in the research for the podcast is tram lining as well so that is that just a it's a longitudinal airway on the slice with sort of a thickened bronchial wall is that more or less correct yeah i guess you do see it but it's not diagnostic um that it's the, the cross-sectional, you know, uh, airways end on what we're talking about is, is a diagnostic bit. So um, the other thing that um, I forgot to mention, actually, is um, tree and bud appearance. Um, so that is kind of, if you think about what, I, I guess, what a, a, a bronchiole kind of looks like, it, it's your kind of stick and then your uh, little... Mm, 
bubbles coming off on the side that then probably then turn into something really important within the alveolar tree. Now, when that gets filled up with fluid, it looks solid and it looks like a tree in bud appearance. So uh, that is a bronchi that is kind of associated with bronchiectasis in that that whole kind of bronchial downstream is filled up with fluid. And so it kind of creates like a white outlining of you know what's going on within a within an actual airway that's filled up with, with mucus. So that can be a sort of soft sign of bronchiectasis as well. Brilliant. And then one thing which I wanted to pick up on as well, don't forget to just mention the absolute basics as well. So full blood count, CRP for markers of infection, inflammation, et cetera. I mean, that that all goes sort of without saying, because although it's part of routine bloods in paces, they're still going to expect you to, to say that sort of stuff as well. So you mentioned autoimmune screen earlier as well. You mentioned about immunoglobulins, looking for sort of uh, underactive immune systems, an HIV test as well. Um, I guess the two final bits that they might expect you to um, at least say in the exam is what special tests you would do for patients with um, cystic fibrosis. And they would be your sweat test and they would be the, the ciliary biopsy, as it were. So the sweat test is looking for um, how much chloride is in your sweat. Um, because the um, ion channel is... Uh, not working properly in CF, then you get too much chloride being pumped into the sweat. So that, that's what they're looking for is to see a higher uh, count of, of, of chloride. And then the other thing is the ciliary biopsy. So outside of CF, we see this very, very infrequently uh, in terms of ordering it. But I do know that I've been asked to request it before and it comes from, I think, the nose. You have to get an ENT person to biopsy the nose because that's the most accessible place with some cilia on it, if that makes sense. So that's that, that's what we that's what we do. So you get a sweat test and get a uh, the nasal biopsy, as it were, for some cilia. Wow, that's interesting. I've never, I mean, I've never even thought of... Um a ciliary biopsy in, in that, in that way ever, albeit me not, not being the person who uh, would, would see that thin end of the wedge. And then last but not least, I wouldn't really be a true cardiologist if I didn't mention that an echo should be done in these patients. If there's any suspicion of pulmonary hypertension there, I've said it. So then moving on to the management of these patients. Now, this is one thing which happens, well, one theme which goes across all all examination stations is that you should more or less start it in the same way, regardless of the condition, which is that it would be an MDT approach led by a consultant with an interest in that particular condition. That was my get out of jail free card to start off my, my presentation of the management. But Diana, this is a really comprehensive coverage of a, of a of a common condition and so your management needs to be absolutely on point and and the examiners if you didn't know the key pillars of managing bronchiectasis you know this is something which they would expect you to do well on so we'll spend a bit of time on this but what are the cornerstones of managing a patient with bronchiectasis so the cornerstone, as it were, the, the, the main things are um, first identifying the cause, because if you remove that, great. Um, you know, for example, like an autoimmune disease that's kind of, you know, rushing away with, with you. So you know, identify that. Um, or if it says, is, for example, um, 
uh, anemonodeficiency, you can give immunoglobulin infusions, you know, et cetera. So there are, you know, lots of different things. If you found the trigger for the bronchiectasis, treat it. Next thing is, it's kind of two things. So one is getting the phlegm up and off the chest. And then the next thing is when you do have an infection, making sure it's a targeted antibiotic therapy. So with respect to getting the phlegm up and off your chest, um, so this is uh, usually helpful with a chest physiotherapist. Ideally, in reality, it, it's kind of difficult uh, in the community to get one. But yeah, good chest physiotherapy. Other things, um, the phlegm in bronchiectasis patients is usually thick and sticky. Um, so and I always ask that in my history. And if it is, then you can give them uh, carbocysteine. Uh, so that's mucodin or it's a mucolytic, really thins it and helps you able to shift it and bring it up. There are also what we call OPEP devices. Now, I've said that and I can't exactly remember what OPEP stands for or the Aerobica device. They're a bit like flutter devices. And what they do is you, um, they, they're a mecha mechanical device that flutters the, uh, the air within the chest, vibrates the air within the chest, shakes up the phlegm, shakes up the mucus secretions and help you expectorate it. And patients love it. So that is how, that's kind of in a nutshell, how you um, get the phlegm up and off their chest. Obviously, just a bit of good housekeeping at that point is make sure that they're not smoking because that's just going to drive the ongoing inflammation. Um, make sure that they are fully vaccinated. So that includes COVID these days, um, but obviously your usual uh, flu and pneumococcus. And you can also, sorry, back in your test, I forgot to say at the start, when you're, you can send functional antibodies um, for pneumococcus and haemophilus, and you can vaccinate against both of those. Um, so we do that. And then also just making sure they've got some nutrition optimization. These patients, like I said, they're kaketic. They don't get time to eat. When they do eat, it wants to be quite calorie dense. Um, so, you know, asking a dietitian um, to see them as well can be very helpful. Then... If chest clearance is one thing, the next thing is sputum samples. You've got to get sputum samples and then you need to find out what's growing in it and give them a targeted course of antibiotic therapy for two weeks. That's the rule. You need to find that. Once you are having a patient who's having more than two chest infections per year, despite having a targeted two-week course of antibiotic therapy, then they can go on to prophylactic antibiotics. And then that takes you into the world of nebulized antibiotics as your background that takes you into azithromycin and so on and so forth. So they're the two things. If you you haven't got long in the pacer station, and I know you need to do all the MDT thing, the money outside of being kind to your MDT members is chest clearance and sputum samples, because that's what actually gets a patient better. Brilliant. What a, what a rattle through. And just if I can ask a bit more about the, uh, the prophylactic antibiotics, is it by and large just nebulized antibiotics? Do you go for oral or other forms of giving antibiotics? So it depends on what the sensitivities are. And that's what it is. So ideally, you would, you know, you would say have this patient that's regularly exacerbating, you know, they need to go on a prophylactic antibiotic, and the sputum sample would come back saying, uh, you know, that they are sensitive to an oral tablet, um, which you can give that, which you can give. 
problem with bronchiectasis is because they've had recurrent chest infections and kind of really dark and murky airway tree. There's a lot of nasty stuff growing, growing down there and it becomes nasty and it becomes resistant. So actually a lot of the stuff that we see um, is resistant to your typical oral antibiotics. The very common one is like pseudomonas. And if you're lucky, it will be um, sensitive to ciprofloxacin. So you can try that. You can try 500 milligrams BD of Cipro. And uh, I always got taught that there was a difference between um, Cipro sensitivity in vitro and in vivo, i.e. if it says that it is resistant on the on the dish or on your um, on your panel that comes back, it may, it may well actually work um, for the patient themselves. So it is worth giving the patient, for example, Cipro, because after that, everything's pretty resistant to all the oral antibiotics. So it's not really like we say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's, um, you know, it's what they can take. So after that, you, you, you'll you then usually get given gentamicin, tobramycin, colomycin, but they're all nebulized. Um, so that's why we give it nebulized, because we've run out of oral options. Um, and then, so it's also the thing with oral options. We do like azithromycin as well, um, but really it's not, Azithro isn't targeted to a specific bacteria. It's antibacterial and anti-inflammatory, which is why we love it. Um, but it's not a true antibiotic in the sense that we're trying to sterilize the chest to get them clean with a bronchiectatic patient. So um, so that's why we that's why we that's why we vary our therapy depending on the, the sensitivities. Yeah, brilliant. And one of the things which I always find really difficult when seeing these patients on the medical take is trying to suss out when exactly there's a true in infective exacerbation. So just thinking outside the paces box for a moment, if you're seeing these types of patients or maybe even, you know, in a history taking station or a station five, you know, you've got time to ask patients these types of questions. Maybe a patient's known to have bronchiectasis. What sort of elements in a history would make you think, okay, this is different from the bog standard cough of your bronchiectasis, and actually, this is a this sounds like a true infective exacerbation of bronchiectasis. So it's a change from their baseline is what you're trying to dig at. Um, but if you want some rule of thumbs, one of my uh, consultants uh, taught me uh, it's a two out of three criteria. Now, this isn't based on any guidelines. This is based on the fact that he's been, you know, he's 65 now. So he's just by osmosis learned everything there is to know about respiratory. But it is ask the patient about change in volume of phlegm, change in colour of phlegm, and have their symptoms worsened, including, for example, breathlessness. Two out of three things indicate usually they've got a chest infection. So has the volume changed and has the colour changed? It's probably infection. Has the colour changed and they feel worse? It's probably infection. So that's 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 my two out of three rule to for assessing it. Brilliant. And then moving on from the medical side of things you mentioned the mucolytics we've talked about prophylactic and uh, acute prescriptions of antibiotics when it goes beyond medical therapy how do we how do we try and determine if a bronchiectasis patient is a, actually approaching the need for surgical intervention so obviously if you've got your cf patient that's quite a, a separate cohort so these are patients that are really losing control um 
fundamentally. So their their, their lung their lung function tests are you know continue their FEV one is continuing to decline. Their infections are repeated. Their quality of life is declining. That's kind of how you would assess a lung transplant um, for a CF for CF patients. Um, with other bronchiectasis patients outside of CF, um, you know, most of these patients have um, uh, just just part of the lung that's infected by bronchiectasis. Um, if it is, for example, post-TB, which is where I've seen, you know, particularly bad cases. Um, I've never seen it for all, I've never seen transplant, I've never seen surgery for more systemic diseases for bronchiectasis. Um, I think it doesn't get bad enough, to be honest, um, to, to go that far. But with respect to um, localised bronchiectasis, the times I have seen us discuss patients with at least the, the surgeons for transplant are the post-TB patients because they get really bad focal bronchiectasis, you know, really dilated bronchioceles, you know, really mucky areas of the lung that are kind of um, demarcated, are quite separate. So it's possible if you were to remove that whole section of lung, then you would take away really the source of recurrent chest infections. I've never seen a patient go for a lobectomy um, for, you know, a localized surgery for bronchiectasis. But it is something that you should bear in mind when you see the patient. And I say the, the one or two times I've seen patients with a very focal type of bronchiectasis that could be considered for local surgery was TB. Brilliant. Really great insight there. Just going through a couple of the last sort of questions which examiners might choose to ask. And this is probably getting towards the end of your your sort of four minutes where the examiner's sort of kicking their heels thinking, oh, God, we need to kill another 30 seconds. Let's ask them something really, really nasty. So one of the things which I found as, as a reported question, which comes around quite a lot, is the various types of respiratory pathogens that may be implicated in these infective exacerbations of bronchiectasis. So you've already mentioned uh, Pseudomonas earlier. So What's the significance of these varying types of uh, pathogens and, and what are the most common ones that you, that you tend to see? This, uh, the significance of it is that really the nastier the infection, the nastier the bug with respect to an infective exacerbation of bronchiectasis, that does genuinely tie in to morbidity and mortality, importantly. So it is important what bugs they're growing in their phlegm, because if you've got, for example, a pseudomonas patient, there is that heart sink, oh God, because they're like, you know that they, they're suddenly not going to live as long, they're not going to do as well because it's fundamentally usually quite resistant and it, it just it sort of heralds this new life of, of chest infections. How, I mean, you can get a one-off growth and then, it, and then you don't see it again, and, and that's what you hope for, but pseudomonas is that kind of, you know, threshold moment of like, oh, you know, this is, this is your life now um, of chest infections. There is like a hierarchy almost, as it were, with, with bugs in the phlegm. So you've got your simple ones, like I'd start off with saying like uh, haemophilus and strep. They're like the not so worrying ones. Then I sort of then put together Staph aureus and Klebsiella. They're a bit worse. Um, then it's Pseudomonas. That's your line in the sand. Um, and then after that, you know, you're really getting onto some of the, you know, the, the really uh, nasty infections. For example, in CF, you're, I, I can't even say it, but the, Bercolderia, I think that's how you say it. 
Um, but yeah, they're the um, they're the main ones. With respect to anything outside of um, bacterial infections, you don't see it that much. You know, for example, like um, aspergillus. So um, you, I think sometimes there's um, confusion with aspergillus because yes, you get IgE to aspergillus because of, we spoke before about ABPA to have an invasive aspergillus infection um that is like you're really quite um immunodeficient and you've got somewhere quite uh open and dark and damp like an old tb cavity where, where it grows in um so you don't really tend to see that much aspergillus and it tends to be if you've got somewhere like i say a nice old abscess where it can sit sit and grow so it's really bacterial is kind of 90% of the, the pathogens that cause infective exacerbations. Perfect. And then coming on to our last question, talking about the complications of bronchiectasis. Again, this is one of the sort of last things that you may end up talking about. And we've talked about several of them through the course of the episode, but what are the sorts of complications that you tend to see in, in, in bronchiectatic patients? So I guess one of the uh, the obvious complication is you know, is a recurrent chest infections, but sepsis. That's what you're worried about. They're, they're a sitting duck for infections uh, for chest infections, so they are at increased risk of getting uh, chest infections and then sepsis. And obviously, that's got its own you know mortality associated with it. Um, if the patients get repeated and repeated chest infections, then they can end up becoming, you know, going into like a usually a type one respiratory failure just because they're failing to op- to oxygenate because their airways have become so, you know, so compromised. Um, with respect to right-sided heart failure and bronchiectasis, the reason two reasons of why you'd get it um, in bronchiectasis. If anyone's still listening to the podcast at this time, because I'm tiring a little bit, so I'm sure the listeners are as well. Two reasons. And generally is that you've got, it's, it's pulmonary hypertension. That's the reason you've got pulmonary hypertension um, in association with, with the bronchiectasis. Now you've either got that because you've just become hypoxic and therefore the uh, the blood vessels have decided not to go near that area because there's no point in going because there's no oxygen in there. So they divert. But if the whole lungs are hypoxic and the blood don't go anywhere, it don't get oxygenated. So then it really does backlog and that's why you get pulmonary hypertension and core pulmonale. The other reason is, I suppose, if you've got pulmonary hypertension, secondary to going back to autoimmune diseases. So if for some reason, for example, like in Crest syndrome, or maybe not that in systemic sclerosis, if the antibodies have decided to attack the, 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 the lung parenchyma and the blood vessels, which it does, then the blood vessels tighten, they become diseased, and then you get pulmonary hypertension and core pulmonale downstream. So yeah, core pulmonale and right side heart failure, usually because of those two reasons. Um, I suppose you can get lung abscesses if you get this untreated rubbish part of the lung, the infection's allowed to grow, it's, you know, the bacteria is not really cleared, it then can wall off and become an abscess. Uh, that's definitely a thing that we see. Um, so I'd say they're the main the, the main uh, complications, certainly in what we would call the kind of uh, post-bacteria era. Those complications tend to remain reasonably localised. Perfect. That pretty much sums up approaching a station of a patient with bronchiectasis. But it's not quite the end of the show. 
Diana still has to tackle Quiz the Consultant. So welcome to Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a quickfire quiz on a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat being that it can't be to do with medicine. So Diana, you mentioned at the top of the show, but if you can tell us again, what have you named as your specialist subject? George Ezra. Fantastic. And you mentioned earlier it was uh, you had you had an album going on on a loop during the course of a holiday. Have you seen the man himself? Have you seen him live? Oh, no, no. I mean, I must say, I've, I'm, I'm long past getting the train into a city to stand with a lot of other people. I mean, I, I've done. I sounds like my idea of hell. No, I, no. I'm quite happy to listen to his music. So this is how we play. There's ten questions. If you manage to answer correctly without the multiple choice options, it's two points. If you need a bit of help, you can ask for the multiple choice options, and you get one point. Happy. Well, yes, as can be. <laughs> as happy as you can be when you're facing yeah. a quick fire quiz. So, 10 questions coming up on George Ezra. Are you ready? Yeah. Question number one. Believe it or not, Ezra is actually George's middle name. But what's his real last name? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to go for. Um... Henry. You can take the multiple choice options. Oh, uh, go on, I'll have multiple choice, please. Because okay. that's a hint if ever I'd heard one. Is it Bridger, Barnet, Bowen, or Boomer? Those sound like really good dog's names. I'm going to go for Barnet. It is Barnet. Ah, good for, guess. For one point. Tick. You're on the board. Question number two. Okay, so the next couple are name the songs from the lyrics. So the first one is, my many artifacts, the list goes on. If you just say the words, I'll up and run. Uh, so I'm singing the song. I'm saying, trying to sing the words in my head. I think it's Budapest. It is Budapest for okay. two points. Thanks. Question number three. It's another name the song from the lyrics. Cold nights and Sunday mornings, on your way and out of the grey. This is Hold My Girl. It is Hold My Girl for another two points. There we go. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> okay, question number four. Ezra has stated he suffers from a form of which psychiatric condition? Oh, I'm going to go for depression. It's not depression, it's OCD. He suffers from something called pure O, which is uh, just the obsessive thoughts without the compulsive behaviours. Okay, question number five. In 2019, Ezra, Ezra was nominated for three Brit Awards, but he only won one of them. Which Brit Award did he win? I'm going to guess best song, and I reckon it was for Paradise or Shotgun. It wasn't best song. It was best male solo artist. It's a tricky one. I'll give you that. It's tricky. Don't forget, you've all you've always got the uh, the multiple choice options. 
Okay, I was fairly sure on that one, but okay, right. Question number six. According to Spotify, which song by Ezra has had the most number of streams? Oh, I'm going to go for Shotgun because it is epic as far as songs go. That's what I'm going to go for. It isn't Shotgun. It is Budapest. Is it? It's, oh. but, it but it is close. However, the next question is even trickier. So I've given you a bit of a... Uh, so this one is, how many streams has Budapest had? And this one is... I'll, I'm going to give you some leeway. I'll... If you can get it um, within 10 million streams, I'll give you right. two points. If you can get it within 25 million streams, I'll give you one point. Oh, I'm going to go for uh, 250 million streams. It's a lot. It's even more than that. It's <laughs> at co- correct at the time of recording. 792 million streams is that is that george ezra downloads or is that pre-paces podcast downloads <laughs> well we're pretty close i'm not gonna lie you, you you could easily get us confused yeah wow that is a lot of downloads wow i'm not surprised but fantastic hey george question number eight what was george's first album called Oh, I think it might not be his actual first album, but the one before staying at Tamara's was called Wanted in Somewhere. It was, oh, I can't quite remember what it's called now. Wanted in America. I'm going to give you one point because you are pretty close. You know, you definitely would have got it with the options. It's Wanted on Voyage. Oh, that's it. Yes. But you would have got, you would have got it with the options. I would have done. Yeah, thanks. Question number nine. Ezra has only had one number one single in the UK. Which song? Um, oh, is it Paradise? It is not Paradise, but I'll, I'm going to give you the multiple choice options. Yeah. Is it Shotgun, <laughs> Budapest, Blame it on me or don't matter now. Oh, well, the last song was crap. I didn't really like that. Don't matter now. So I'm going to go for, I'm going to go for shotgun again, but I feel bad to keep saying it. It is shotgun. Right. (laughs) It is shotgun. Okay. And finishing on a podcasting note, Ezra has actually started two podcasts himself. You can name either one for two points, or you can take the options. Uh, I'll take the options, please. Okay. Is it called George Ezra and Friends? George Ezra versus the world? George Ezra drinks pints? Or George Ezra, I'm here all week? Um, I think he's quite clean living, so I don't think it's uh, George Ezra drinks pints. So uh, I'm going to go for George Ezra and Friends because it sounds a bit like something of Rainbow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely correct. It is George Ezra and Friends, which gives you a final score at the end of Quiz the Consultant of eight points. And I'll be honest, George Ezra is a pretty specific subject, but 
I think it was a brilliant one. I really enjoyed writing the quiz and I think it's a respectable score. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. That was, uh, yeah. I'm glad I didn't finish doing too much brushing up on my interest of George Ezra. It could have been, yeah, quite some time. I learned a lot. Thank you. How exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and Diana, that only leaves us to say a huge thank you to you for coming on the podcast and helping us discuss the topic of bronchiectasis. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I wish everybody well in their paces exam. It is, yeah, it's a bit of a performance, isn't it? It doesn't always seem like it correlates between how good you are on the shop floor and, and the actual exam, but I'm sure with this excellent resource, everyone will do excellent in uh in respiratory stations at least so yeah thank you for doing all this sam much appreciated it is no problem at all and it's people like you that keep the podcast going and not forgetting of course you can listen to um diana's podcast the respiratory guru you can search it on spotify apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i really strongly encourage you to go and have a listen to that and especially if you have an interest in uh, respiratory to keep up to date with all the latest publications and research in respiratory so yeah i strongly encourage you to go and have a have a listen to that but listeners unfortunately that is the end of the show once again please feel free to subscribe to the podcast like the podcast wherever you get your podcasts Get involved with the conversation on Twitter. It's at prepacespodcast. Visit the website at prepacespodcast.com. We are just about out of time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast. <laughs>